tonight I'm mainly going to talk about ways that we can cultivate compassion in our practice and in our daily life. Tomorrow night we'll hear a bit more about wisdom. But wisdom and compassion mm, takes a lot, oops, takes a whole lot of wisdom and compassion to sit with ourselves for a day, doesn't it? Anybody notice that? There's this avalanche in the mind. There's just the mind wants to have its own way. It's just running on with all these thoughts and plans and stories and fantasies. And then if it's not into all that and the judgment and the doubt, then it's spacing out. And, you know, it's just amazing, isn't it? When you just sit down and notice for a day. The Buddha called that the first insight, seeing the waterfall. Just the mind running on. Then that's the mind. Then there's the body. You know, the tiredness, the restlessness, the achiness, the pain, the burning. This this whole thing that's going on when we just sit down and pay attention. I remember so well the the first day of one of the first retreats I did about 27 years ago. At the end of the first day, seriously sitting there thinking, how could this possibly lead to any sort of liberation or happiness or basically anything other than a backache, you know, wondering what was this practice? How was this supposed to help anything? But as you see, I stated, I I got over that particular day and I'm glad I did. So the Buddha says that if we pay very close attention to the process of life, we will recognize three basic characteristics that mark all of existence. And he also says, Buddha says, don't take my word for this. Look for yourself. But I'll just give you a preview of what you might notice if you look very closely. Um, he says, There's, we'll notice that everything is changing that there's impermanence, that nothing stays just the same. Nothing is permanent. The second of these characteristics, he said, if you just pay a lot of attention, we'll notice that there is a quality, either a subtle or gross quality of dissatisfaction that runs through every part of our life. Of, uh, it's sometimes translated as suffering. The, the Pali word I happen to like is dukkha. It's just got, it's like, um, you know, dukkha. You can almost feel it in the word. The Buddha says, if we look closely, we'll see this compared to the peace of a Buddha. Where we're hanging out in our ordinary life is filled with this dissatisfaction. And the third of these characteristics, he said, if we look very closely, there's a, a profound mystery that's recognized. This is not something learned through the intellect, so you can't try to figure this one out. This is an intuitive, experiential experience, but understanding that it is the truth of what's called no-self or emptiness or selflessness, that there's no particular, solid, separate self. I won't even go down the road of that one tonight. I'll just say that's there if you look closely. And the Buddha teaches that these three characteristics, 
the deep insight into them which includes acceptance of them that's the big trick of course form the foundation of wisdom that all wisdom that we could have that's of any value will come once we are grounded in the the three characteristics of existence so we may come to a retreat you know first retreat thinking wow you know I'll have really deep spiritual experiences I'll have rapture I'll have all kinds of amazing angels coming or whatever may come but what comes particularly on the first day for a lot of people is this characteristic of dukkha we're sitting here going ah I'm suffering (laughs) came here for spiritual experience and this is it the Buddha would say, very good, you're, you're realizing one of these main facts of life. And I would be likely to say, well, I didn't have to come here to figure that out, you know. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have to come to a retreat, did I, to know that there's suffering in life. I already figured that one out. Um, we come to retreat and do intensive practice to learn a new way to relate to the suffering and in that new relating we find that there is a way out of suffering the Buddha said I come to teach only two things truth of suffering and the end of suffering so wisdom this quality of wisdom sees the truth yes there is suffering people get sick they get old they die they change it hurts to be a human there's suffering. The Buddha, the wisdom recognizes that without pretending it isn't so, without being in denial. And wisdom knows that the way out of suffering is letting go. The rub is, or the good news maybe in a certain way, it takes so much compassion to be with that much letting go. You know what I'm talking about? You might see the suffering, but it takes so much compassion to hang in the process of, of letting go of all the ways that we don't really want to let go. Who wants to let go of being young? Let it go. Um, there's a psychologist from Harvard named Jack Engler, and he's been practicing this kind of meditation for about 30 years now. He said a really interesting thing. Um, I'm not quoting him as a, a Dharma expert or Dharma teacher, but more as a, a senior, senior student who had a very interesting insight over many years of practice. He said, um, the growth and development of wisdom is a process of grieving. Interesting. And, and he went on to say that in order to really come into peace with the three characteristics, we, to accept the fact that everything is changing, that everyone will die, there's a process that, that involves grief. To accept that there's all this suffering, that that's part of it, 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 it involves being able to feel, open our heart and feel the grief. And even at certain levels, the process of the deeper experiences of no self there are times where we have to let go of a certain way we're identified with who we thought we were and that may involve 
something that looks like grief. I'll tell you a story about um, a dear friend of mine who a number of you know in different ways. She's a woman I have led um, vision quests in the wilderness, backpacking trips for 20 years with. Her name is Debbie. And um, she's been, uh, and we've been together, uh, and she's been a serious, serious Dharma practitioner, cultivating wisdom and compassion for 25 or 30 years. And she's a beautiful being. Um, and, you know, she loves wilderness, loves backpacking, hiking, all that. We've been sharing that for all these years. She lives in Inverness because she's an everyday hiker, loves to be outside, loves to hike. She's also a dancer. She's a great woman. What can I say? So she began having all this pain in her hip. And she went to all the various alternative healers and therapies, everybody. Finally, after this pain just kept going and and getting quite intense, she went to um, doctors, Western doctors. And after all the testing, they gave her a diagnosis. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a form of bone degeneration And the best that they could offer, this fabulous, alive, vital, hiker, walker, dancer friend of mine, was pain medication, which makes quite a side effect for her. And the advice, serious advice, do not walk anymore. Save your steps for around your house, going to your car, the grocery store, and every time you can shorten that distance, you know, have your husband drop you off in front of the place instead of walking across the parking lot. Save every step. Imagine this. How would that be for you to have your doctor say, you know? And even if you take the pain medication, save every step if you want to save any ability to walk at all. Devastating. Devastating. It would be like asking, you know, I don't know, the artist not to paint or the flower not to bloom to ask Debbie not to go outside and hike but that's what's been asked of her and she long ago made a vow as did a a number of us to use whatever may arise whatever may come along in my life as a Dharma gate as awakener so this is a big one this is like where the rubber meets the road. And so this comes under the heading of, oh, even this. I vowed 20-some years ago to use even this for awakening. You know, can't I just hate this? And yes, you can go through the process of hate, but at some point, there's this other possibility. The Buddha saying, the end of suffering. Even this. So um, she has been doing extraordinarily well and graceful in the process of opening to this enormous change and loss in her life. Um, She's called on, I mean really calling on, every ounce of her 30 years of practice in the cultivation of wisdom and capacity. I mean, she's working on this. It's not sort of. It's... And it's not just every day during her sitting. I mean, it's hours of, of working, working with this big change. This has been, I guess, about two months that she's been dealing with this, this diagnosis. Um, 
she, of course, she's a very compassionate being and has worked a lot through all her life to, com- to find compassion for herself. So now she's working um, to have, just to have the compassion to feel the um, immense amount of resistance and grief, compassion for the loss she's going through. So she's working with that. But also, every single day in her meditation practice, she sits and she's breathing, she's being present. And if any grasping comes, any resistance to impermanence, to the truth of impermanence comes, the wisdom part of her works to, ah, can I open? Can I find room? Can I allow room for the fact of impermanence as it's having a head-on collision with me? It's not just an idea I learned about at Dharma school. This is real. Can I keep letting go, moment by moment? Now, um, the reason I'm telling the story and the most important part of the story, and I wish there was somehow for me to sort of show you this. She has been, in the last, I'd say, six or, I don't know, four to six weeks, in the most open place in her body, I mean, her, her heart and her mind that, that she's ever known or that I've known. I mean, I've known her well for many years. Um, she's experiencing more freedom of being than she's ever experienced. She's experiencing a quality of inner happiness. It's incredible. And it's not just me noticing it. Our close circle of friends, someone called me on the phone and said, I ran into Debbie. She's practically enlightened. You know? and, and it's not that she hasn't had tests. During this exact same period of time, there's been some huge family stresses and her father died. And she's dwelling and resting in just a deeper place of freedom than she's ever known. So I'm telling you that story because it's so inspiring for me to get to watch the fruit of practice being harvested right before my eyes. To just watch how this is not happening by any accident. This is using compassion and wisdom hours a day and the result is this beautiful, spacious freedom in the midst of this enormous loss. Actually, combination of losses And of course, as she opens in this way, there are so many ways that then her compassion, the space in her, opens and it's available in such a a deeper and deeper way to others. So when we open in ourselves, again, we open, we benefit others. One of the most um, famous, and uh, for very good reason, um, true embodiments of wisdom and compassion that's alive on the planet now that I know of is the Dalai Lama. And if you ever get the chance to be in his presence, it's the real thing. It's a beautiful, beautiful embodiment. And in his book, his um, book called No Ethics for a New Millennium, he said that if, if we humans are to find any kind of peace on earth, what it's going to require is more people experiencing what he calls empathy or compassion. Meaning, 
the willingness to feel with empathy, feel with and compassion, to feel and care for the conditions of others. And he said, particularly, we humans have to begin to feel with and care for the conditions of those who are different from us. Different races, different cultures, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different. He said, when we can feel with those that have a different experience, then there's the possibility for peace. Because as long as we're experiencing whoever they are as other, we can do all kind of horrific things to them. Or we can look the other way when injustice is happening to them when they're another. But when we are us, when that's my family, I don't look the other way. So that's the Dalai Lama's um, challenge to humanity, really. The Buddha um, talks about compassion as the quivering of our heart when we are near the pain of ourself or someone else. Compassion is this capacity that we have to care for to have compassion be with you in your passion. There's a, a beautiful story um, that I was told as teaching a retreat for all um, social activists once, and a woman who's a Chippewa Indian told me this story. She said, um, during the Irish potato famine, the Chippewa Nation, of course, as we know, was com- completely impoverished. They had lost everything, everything, not only food and comfort, but land, dignity, language, religion, everything. Um, unthinkable losses that they, that they had been through. And they heard about, somehow, what was happening to the Irish in the Irish potato famine. And because they had been cold, they had been hungry, and they had been so afraid, how will I feed my child? They knew what it felt like. And they allowed themselves to care for these strangers across the ocean. And the Chippewa people, who again had nothing, dirt, dirt poor, gathered their whole community, and they collected, they made a collection all, um, this is so moving to me, all the American dollars they had, which almost came to 300 American dollars. And they took all of their money and sent them to an Irish charity. And the Irish people heard about this in the newspaper. And of course, they were so moved that people who they had heard the stories, who had been so devastated, would give everything they'd got to strangers. So, when many Irish uh, immigrants came, they went out of their way to find their way all the way out to the Chippewa Nation and to settle right next door. These are my friends. And a bond grew between these two groups of people who'd lost everything. They began working on projects, helping each other. They still, to this day, 
have annual parades and annual projects and picnics. All of this is based on the willingness of those Chippewa people to let themselves feel with the suffering of others. And out of that feeling came compassion and generosity. It's an incredible um, story. So the seed of infinite compassion is in every heart. Yet we so rarely feel that. Sometimes we feel some degree of compassion or maybe for someone we know, but this infinite compassion we rarely feel. And part of the reason, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons for that is that it's hard to face suffering in ourselves or in others. It's hard to do what the Chippewa people did. We closed down. And even harder than facing the fact that it's out there, that there's just, you know, the lists of AIDS orphans and refugees and homeless. And I mean, you know, I could go on. All the people, all the youth that are in jail or getting shot on streets because of racism. I mean, there's, the list is so infinite. It's hard to face. But even harder than facing it is to open to it. We often want to guard or close down in the face of suffering. Yet part of the path taught to us, not only by the Buddha, certainly by Christ, by great, great beings, the path of the awakened heart includes the willingness to open our heart to the way it is for other people and ourselves to suffering. And we, you know, everybody, we all try to resist pain. You know, that's a human thing. If I can get out of this, I will. But we take that to quite an extreme, that resistance. And when we start paying attention, we notice that resistance to uh, our pain or others increases the pain. Have you noticed that? Can you tune? When I fight and try to not experience this pain, there's another way that it becomes more painful. And when we finally allow ourselves to be touched and opened to feel with, there's this great relief because that's when the healing balm of compassion can flow. When we're finally touched, we finally just allow our heart to break open. Getting dark. Could, Julie, could you turn that light on? This is definitely a new millennia meditation hall, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And you have this little shooter thing. There we go. Such an extraordinary thing the part of the guarantee, the deal, of being a human being. No getting out of this deal. You will experience suffering. First noble truth, by the way. And part of the deal is that we all come equipped, hardwired, 
for having a heart that can hold it all. That there's enough compassion and love to hold what comes. That's amazing. And I don't know who wrote the script on that one. I, you know, I think we would all change it if we could. Um, I think the only valuable thing about suffering, you know, we, we can all make these nice sort of platitudes about suffering, is that it deepens compassion if we let it. Um, one of our teachers, Julie and I, love very much Stephen Levine and re- highly recommend any time he's around, every decade or so, and he comes out of retreat. Stephen Levine is, is one of the most quotable people, Dharma teachers. He, he speaks in these eloquent, um, almost like poetry. And so one day he was going on in this poetic way about how suffering opens us to compassion and how we can learn so much about suffering. Then he just stopped and he said, wait, don't get me wrong. I don't want to for a second pretend that suffering is in any way okay. He said, suffering sucks. <laughs> that was the great eloquence, Stephen Levine. He said, let's just get that straight. But since it's here, thank God there is there are teachings of how to be with it. And certainly compassion is that great teaching. Compassion is like a loving mother. You know, a little child... Um, is all um, wakes up and believes the nightmare is real and is freaking out. And when the loving parent holds that little child, the, the little child can relax, go back to sleep. Compassion holds all of our freaking out, all of our contractions in the same way. When we allow ourselves to be held in this great compassion, we also can begin to relax and come. We, we unfold. There's a way we can relax enough to unfold into our wholeness. Um, i tell you a story about my brother, whose name was Rick. Um, he was an incredible guy. He was brilliant and loved the five-star, you know, Mercedes-Benz life. He was an attorney, and he was this fantastic gay attorney. And um, he died of AIDS. And it wasn't really until he was in the dying process that his heart really opened at a deeper level. Um, he was about 44 then, and he'd had so many friends die. Um, he stopped attending funerals at the 100th funeral of a close friend. Just, it's unthinkable, the AIDS epidemic. So he pretty much closed down to that whole thing. And um, when I had to tell him this one night, Rick was in the hospital and I had to tell him that our mutual friend of 20-some years, Bob, had died that day. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know if he'd be kind of cut off from it. I just didn't know. Um, so I told him and he 
completely somehow was touched. He felt it. <laughs> and he'd gotten really quiet and then tears just began streaming down his face, which had never up until this point happened. And he hadn't, I hadn't seen him cry for himself. He'd somehow managed to hold it all together through this ordeal. But this hearing that our friend Bob died cracked him open because of Bob's mother, Beth. And um, he said, oh, Beth, what's she going to do? She lost her husband and two sons in 15 months. And he said, and I can't go help her. I don't have the energy. Deborah, will you go be with her? Who's going to help her? And he, his heart broke open for this woman's suffering, for her losses. And as he wept and cried and felt for her and told me about Beth, he said, when we were young teenagers in Southern California and it was really, really hard to be gay in the early 60s or whenever it was, middle 60s, uh, he said, she accepted us. She listened to us. She, she had us into her house. You know, she's such a great person and now she's lost her sons and her husband. And he, he was just crying. And in this process, the dam finally broke and he began to feel the, the great compassion, the Maha Karuna. He, he began to feel first compassion. Once he connected and opened to suffer, to the suffering of death, he felt about our mother, what she was going to feel when he died. He let himself feel it. He'd been holding that one off and our father. And then um, when he did that, suddenly he could feel this hospital he was in, which had hundreds and hundreds of dying people and families and grieving. And he was suddenly this compassion for what was going on began moving through him. And then finally, for the first time, compassion finally opened for himself. He felt, ah, oh, right in the middle of my life, right, right here, right right here I've lost all my friends and now I'm losing my life and he had compassion for his own suffering and it was a profound event I I mean I was just standing there weeping next to him it was a huge turning point and I think because not certainly because of any spiritual practice he'd done but because he was in a dying process he um, the wall never went back up So, for the remainder of his life, which was only six or eight weeks after that, he was mostly open and loving and humorous and kind. It was like the child I remembered him to be. He didn't even seem to notice that he'd completely transformed, but all his friends were just going, whoa, who is that? It was very incredible. So I'd like you to notice, when I tell this story... Let your awareness notice what you're experiencing. Because that's quite a heavy story of, of my brother dying, of this woman losing her, her sons and her husband. And notice what you're experiencing with no judgment. Just what are you experiencing now? So as you're noticing, you may notice sadness. You may notice compassion, feeling with um, my brother's losses or feeling with the woman, Beth, you may possibly notice feeling completely cut off, just 
not feeling anything. By the way, no judgment if that's your experience. Just noticing. Uh, you may feel overwhelmed. Like, whoa, there's already so much suffering and now more suffering. And sometimes some people become overwhelmed with the sadness of the world. And when we find that we're being swamped by the sadness of the world, that's not called compassion. That's being swamped. <laughs> and we work for balance so that we can actually feel compassion. And what brings us back is the wisdom of equanimity. So if we're really losing it, sinking under the water of the sadness of the world, then the equanimity practice um, says, you do an inner practice that says, each being is the owner of their own karma. And although I care about your suffering, I cannot take it from you. I cannot change it for you. But I care about you. But, but, so that's bringing back the wisdom so you may need to do that when you hear about this suffering. It's possible that you feel what's called the near enemy of compassion, which is pity. Which is, um, it has, pity has in it um, aversion, and it has, it has sep- separateness in it. So we might hear about this poor, pathetic other, her, that horrible thing happened to her or to him. Who? It's good that horribleness wouldn't have happened to me. Somehow, you know. But poor her. Maybe I could send a contribution to her charity or something. You know, there's a a pity is not, is also not compassion. Compassion recognizes that we're not separate. That that's my mother, not somebody else's mother, or even deeper, that's me. It could be me. It is me. Compassion isn't separate from the other. In compassion, we we feel how we are all vulnerable human beings. Regardless of race, religion, class, we all have in common this capacity to love and care others and the capacity to lose those beloved others that's we, we have impermanence in common and we have this capacity for compassion so for just a moment uh, we actually did this a little today in the guided meditation but for, close your eyes for just a moment and I'll remind you of the way that we are trained to cultivate compassion. And this will just be for a few moments. You don't even have to change your position. But for just a moment, allow yourself to think of this woman, Beth, as far as I know, she's still alive. Or you may think of another person you know who has had some great loss And just see, as you think of this person, whoever is coming to your mind, if you can allow your heart to be touched by their sorrows, by their losses. Just see if you can allow yourself 
to care. Inside your heart, to you, my friend, whoever you are, I care, I care that you've suffered. I'm touched inside by your struggle. Compassion has the wish to find ways I might be of support or care or help you. But at this moment, what I can do is send you the wish and the blessing that you would be held in great love, that you would find the compassion inside of your sorrow, wish for you to heal, to be at peace with your life. So this simple act of opening to the loss or the sorrow of yourself or another and extending kindness and love is how we cultivate compassion in meditation. You can open your eyes if you want. I'll tell you another story. This is a story that something that happened to me a few years ago, about, I guess it was four or five years ago. I was going to sit a meditation retreat, about three or four week meditation retreat, and it was during this very difficult time in my life. Um, before my brother died, two really good friends died, then my brother, then my mother then my grandmother, then my father. That all happened. And there were some other huge losses, and that all happened in three and a half years. And I was caregiving to my brother and my mother and father one at a time, so it was quite a time. And my father had died, and I was going off to this retreat, and um, I was sort of playing with my husband, who wasn't going, I mean, kind of playing, but kind of not playing, grabbing onto his arm saying, promise me you won't die while I'm gone. You know, will you promise? You know, he'd sort of play back, sure, of course, yeah, I can promise. And of course, you know, my, my big self, my grown-up self knows that was a, a silly thing to ask. But there was actually, the reason I was playing with it was that there was this little part of me that was so shook up from losing my whole family that my husband was the one last sort of family I had um, that I just felt I wasn't ready to bear losing the last straw. And um, so I went off to the retreat in this sort of shaky place. And it was hard. I'm a psychotherapist. I've worked with people a long, long time. I've been a Dharma teacher. I know about impermanence. I know about grief. You know, I know about that stuff. But there I am sitting there with myself with my feelings and with my mind. And what was happening was all this sort of discomfort and all this kind of restlessness and kind of wanting to leave and then I'd try to become present and boom, there'd be a story, a memory and then if I got a little deeper, there'd be all this insecurity and fear and it was dukkha. I call it deep dukkha. 
So I was going along and sort of struggling along every once in a while. I'd have a few mindful moments and then I'd judge myself. How could I be a Dharma teacher? You know, I'm totally lost here. Finally, I don't know, three or four days into this retreat, I, I realized that there was nothing to do but the compassion practice. Nothing. Even forget even trying anything else. I just surrendered. In I had allowed the waves of grief to come, but this was different. I began really doing compassion practice for my own incredible, shaky, raw, scared, little, insecure me. The little one who I thought should be bigger by now or should have it together or all these years of meditation or whatever I was suffering about. Just mercy to that whole thing, you know. Just compassion to this human being who lost everybody and who was shell-shocked and, and just felt so un, like there wasn't anywhere <laughs> the truth. There was nowhere solid to rest. But I wasn't being at peace with that truth. So I just did hours and hours of compassion practice. And as I opened to just opening my heart to being an untogether person, <laughs> you know, who, who was just scared and insecure and lonely and afraid, I, I just began naturally to feel this compassion for all the other people who've lost one or two or ten loved ones and then all the people who would grieve and pretty soon that is everyone and I was just sitting with all this compassion for the human condition here we are whoa this is so big to face down ah everybody dies just compassion for all of us and then from this place of hours and hours and really having been opened through this practice of compassion where the compassion went way beyond little me Um, someone came in a teacher and um, during a Dharma talk he read this poem that I'm going to read you this poem is um, not a compassion poem it's a wisdom poem but he read this poem this was written by a Zen master when he, on a pilgrimage, went to the Bodhi tree, the site of the Buddha's enlightenment. Once a great man sat beneath the Bodhi tree. He saw the eastern star and became enlightened. He absolutely believed his eyes, and he believed his ears, his nose, his tongue, body, and mind. The sky is blue, the earth is brown, and so he was awakened to the truth and attained freedom beyond birth and death. The intensive compassion, the hours and hours of compassion, softened me and opened me enough that I could somehow completely received the wisdom. This is the wisdom teaching. Somehow, without any particular effort, just sitting there, I mean the effort of being at the retreat and practicing, but suddenly I completely believed 
my experience. I completely believed my eyes, my ears, the fact of my life. Everyone dies. Everything is changing. That's how it is. And somehow, and I wish I could somehow transmit this moment to you, in this moment of completely dropping resistance to that fact, that characteristic, that truth, something in me completely opened. All the resistance, all the fear, all the pain, all completely disappeared. And I was resting in this profound place of non-grasping, non-clinging, deep peace, emptiness, and, and feeling completely connected through compassion and love with everyone. And it lasted for weeks. I mean, it was a huge, huge, profound opening for me and learning. And I share that story because it really speaks to the power in our practice when we practice of compassion and wisdom. We work to develop that really believing, seeing, being with what is so what are our eyes seeing? What are our senses seeing? What are we hearing? Just the sky is blue. This is so. This is how life is. And we work to cultivate compassion. And every once in a while, it comes together and there's a whole deeper view of who we really are and what's really possible, what our relationship to suffering is. So, Fortunately, we don't have to um, have this terrible string of losses to cultivate or discover um, great wisdom and compassion. These are qualities that are part of us, part of what's called the great innate perfection. And we come into practice in order to unveil that great innate perfection that's already here. So in, in meditation, we practice again and again, letting go of all the ways that we grasp, trying to hold on to something that's ungraspable. We let go of all the ways we're pushing away an unpleasant experience. We practice opening, <coughs> opening and opening. We cultivate compassion, we cultivate wisdom. And as we practice like this over and over, over months, over years, the um, layers of our protections and the stories become less and less solid, much more transparent, and we begin to see life as it is. We begin to come into a peace with life as it is. And in seeing, part of just seeing life as it is, the truth, is that we have this deep connection, which I mentioned last night, of our interconnectedness. And in that interconnectedness, the wisdom and compassion come together. Deciding whether or not I'll read you the poem. The um, part of practice is to see the conditions that lead 
to suffering or to um, creating suffering. And I'm going to read this poem that is has really become a classic. You may have, you know, found it like at a in a school textbook by now or something by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's become such a classic, and you'll see why. There's so much wisdom and compassion in this poem. I'm just going to read a few lines. It's called, Please Call Me By My True Names. I'm a frog swimming happily in the clear water of a pond. And I am the grass snake who, approaching in silence, feeds itself upon the frog. I am the 12-year-old girl, a refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by the sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and of loving. My joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. And my pain is like a river of tears, so full it fills all four oceans. So please, Call me by my true names so I can hear all my cries and all my laughter at once so that I can see that my joy and my pain are one. Please call me by my true names so that I can wake up and that the door of my heart will be left open, the door of compassion. So in this, in this poem we feel how real compassion is not passive, it's not apathetic. This, um, we don't just have acceptance of what the rapist did, but true compassion takes the time to see the condition that led the pirate to being able to do harm at that level. It said that true compassion does not exclude anyone. That boundless state of compassion. The Dalai Lama, who again I said is such the heroic embodiment of this and, and the world's real teacher of compassion because of how he's handled what he's been through and he's still going through with the Chinese, says, um, he said, in my country, in Tibet, he said, many Chinese soldiers have committed unthinkable atrocities against innocent people, children, nuns, monks, old people, innocent people. And he said, when I think of what it must be like in the hearts and the minds of those soldiers, how could I feel anything but compassion? So this is a huge assignment. You know, the assignment to find out how to open our heart to all of it. And, you know, it's not a setup for us to feel hopeless and guilty and a failure, and you know, that we don't feel compassion for the person who whatever did whatever horrible thing to us. But it is, it's an inspiring thing to know that's what is our human capacity and that we can practice towards it. The, the Dalai Lama is just basically, in all his books, he's just saying, practice, practice, practice this. Practice.
practice compassion every day. Think about it. It's not sort of a haphazard thing. He spends hours a day cultivating. And the path that's certainly modeled by the Dalai Lamas and was taught and modeled by the Buddha, um, like I said, it's not passive. It includes compassionate action, taking action where we can, where we can do something to alleviate suffering. We do do it. Uh, and it may come in so many forms. It may come, you know, s- sitting with the shut-in down the street or attending infinite boring meetings to change something or maybe involved in direct action. Um, and I experience that um, being awake in social action, staying compassionate is an enormous challenge because those of us who work for change, either social change or environmental protection, we get mad that this thing that is wrong is happening. And in that anger, there's either what's called fierce compassion, which is a sword and it's fiery and it knows how to say, no, it's wrong and I'll stand, I'll put my body in the way of that, out of love. That's fierce compassion. And then there's action taken out of hatred. When we take action out of hatred and we make the other the other, we're actually digging the big hole deeper. And I'm telling you, it is hard for me. In the projects I'm involved in, I feel how I want to get into them. How could they have done that? Whatever. And then I work to find my way. Here we all are. Here we are together. How can we work to create less suffering. It's an enormous... These, these things I'm talking about, these are enormous tasks to find fierce compassion versus hatred. But what else is there to do, as Stephen Levine would say? What else is there to do with a lifetime? You know, spend our life hating ourselves and others? So we, so we practice. Um, I just think, I want to finish by saying one of the most epidemic level places where compassion is needed in our country, in our Western culture, particularly America, is toward our own self. Epidemic levels of self-judgment and self-hatred and all the addictions, sufferings, and the, all the pain and the horrified projected, projecting that out on others and their ruining relationships, just suffering, feeling separate. It's, it's rampant. And I would guess that everyone in this room knows what I'm talking about to some degree. We, um, we can be ruthless with ourselves. And it's interesting to find out this is not necessarily a universal truth. It's not happening in every country, in every culture. But we Americans can really go at our own throat. You know, maybe we're feeling sick, and then we beat ourselves up for doing. I should have been. I should have done this more. It was my fault. You know. So we already feel bad enough by feeling sick, and then we add more. We heap it on ourselves. We feel unworthy. We feel unlovable. You know. We're lonely, and then we add all this judgment on. It's my fault. I should have communicated better. I should have been a more loving person. It's I'm a bad person. I'll never be loved. I mean, this huge thing, and it hurts. It hurts so much. It hurts us when we 
close ourselves out of our own heart. It's almost like the, the American ideal or something believes that there's something good about doing this to ourselves. If I just whip myself hard enough, I'm going to snap out of it and I'll, get, I'll, I'll whip myself into shape here, you know. There's something going, there's a lot going on that causes us to, to be this way. We treat ourselves worse than we would treat a stranger. And our work is to work to change that. To learn to have kindness for ourselves. Kindness instead of judgment. Forgiveness for our imperfection. Compassion for our suffering. It sounds like cliche. It's heard it a million times, but we're going to keep saying it until we get it because this is such a big thing. And we can practice this as we sit here, as we, as we notice the aversion to ourselves, the judgment coming up. We can breath, take a breath and, ah, What if I would hold this part of me, this very frightened part of me, this wounded part of me, with compassion instead of judgment? What would happen? And we know what happens. We soften. We open. We come back into interconnection. We come back to a love that is greater than all our wounds and fears. Are, we're challenged by the Buddha and by other great, great teachers, certainly Christ, to cultivate love and compassion as well as wisdom every day. To take that on. To say, I don't know how long I'll live in this life and I don't know how far I'll make it in this lifetime, but I'm going to use my time here to intentionally find these possibilities of the heart of compassion and love we um, we practice meditation we come to retreats we we can do daily practices of compassion and when we are in when there's suffering around ourselves or someone else's we ask can I open to this am I closing down well if I'm closing down can I be compassionate to myself for closing down, not have some ideal. So, um, the Dalai Lama, actually before I mention the Dalai Lama, I'll just say that um, Sokni Rinpoche, who I cannot speak of highly enough, is such a, um, again, one of these embodiments, and I could just tell you stories and stories about him, how he lives his life, giving, um, had the amazing karma or whatever you want to call it he's what's called a tulku a reincarnate uh, Rinpoche Lama so he's, he's like the Dalai Lama he's already been a high Lama for many lifetimes that he was recognized as a child and because of that he grew up with and where he was living in Nepal he grew up living with and receiving teachings since a tiny child from the greatest meditation masters of the century. Dilgo Kense, Karmapa, Dalai Lama, the, you know, Naisho Kempo, these great beings he lived with and studied with for, for years and years and years. He, he carries that whole deep, powerful 
reality in him. And he said that after living with these people, and his father was Toku Ergen, one of the great meditation teachers, by the way. And um, he said in speaking with them and in observing them, he saw that there was a point in their practice when what was really important to them, what they really focused on, was wisdom and mindfulness and clarity. And he said then there was another phase in their practice when what was really important to them was emptiness, really experiencing the selfless nature. He said, but finally, for the last segment of these lives of these great beings, what mattered to them was to live in continual compassionate action. And he said he had the chance to watch and live with people who lived like that. Incredible. So I'll finish with um, the prayer that the Dalai Lama says every morning. He chants it and he prays it. And as I say this, ask yourself what, what it would maybe be like if every morning of my life I started my day with a prayer like this. May I become for all times, both now and forever, a protector for those without protection, a guide for those who have lost their way, a ship for those with oceans to cross, a bridge for those with rivers to cross, a sanctuary for those in danger, a lamp for those without light, a place of refuge for those who lack shelter, and a servant to all in need. So for just a few moments, that's just a sit. Don't even have to change positions. So as the evening goes on, may you find great, deep kindness for yourself in whatever your experience is. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.